So, Ted, does he have a job? <laughs> the verdict may still be out on that one. We'll see. I, uh, I do appreciate you praying for me. Um, this is kind of a weird thing, and you guys are spinning, so sit still, all right? Uh, or maybe spin a little bit more, and maybe you'll come into phase. Maybe that'll help. Um, I do appreciate you praying for me and um, praying for God's wisdom, uh, particularly about this trip. That's, that's probably the most important thing that's on my mind at the moment. But right now, what I want us to do is to spend time doing what we do, and that is opening God's Word and looking at it and reading it and studying it for ourselves. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them out and let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. Let's turn them once again to Mark chapter 14. And today we are going to look at the second half of the Garden of Gethsemane passage. We looked at the first half last week from verses 32 to 42. And in those verses, we were able to contemplate the awful burden that the cup of the burden of the cup that Jesus knew that he had to drink in order to provide sinners with the salvation that, that we have. We also consider the fact that he prayed to his father that if it would be the father's will to remove the burden of that cup from him. But he also prayed, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And then as we, as we looked at those two things together, the awful burden of the cup and the submission of the son's will to his father's, then what we came away with that was the amazing depth of the Savior's love for us is on full display in that passage. In fact, what we concluded from our look at last week's verses is just simply this. In an unimaginable display of love, Jesus submitted himself to the unimaginable horror of being God forsaken so that sinners like you and me might be God accepted. That's really what the gospel is all about. And in that passage, in the first part of this Garden of Gethsemane passage, we see Jesus portrayed for us as, as the humble, suffering servant that the Bible says that he would be. In fact, Old Testament prophecies, particularly, I, I was thinking this week about Isaiah 53, that, that passage that so many of, of us are familiar with. And we're familiar with these, these phrases throughout Isaiah 53 that, that tell us that the Messiah, when he would come, would be one who was despised and rejected. He would be a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. He was one who bore the, our grief and our sorrows upon himself. He was one smitten by God, Isaiah says. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The one by whose stripes we are healed. The one upon whom our iniquity was laid. The one whom it pleased the Lord to bruise and put to grief. He was the one who poured out his life and his soul unto death in order to justify and bear the sin of many. This, this is who the scriptures tell us that Jesus the Messiah would be and it tells us exactly who he was. He was the son of God and the son of man sent to bear the penalty of our sin in order that we might be saved. And in the garden, as, as Jesus stared into that cup, he knew what lay in front of him and 
he knew that it was not just abandonment, it was not just suffering, it was not just death on a cross, but what really terrified Jesus, as we noted last week, was the fact that for the first time in all of eternity, he would experience, an un, that he would experience the interruption of the fellowship that he had always had with his heavenly Father from the beginning of time. And, and at that point, the undiluted wrath of God against sin would be poured out upon him. As we noted last week, before the cross of Calvary, upon which Jesus relinquished his body to be crucified, came the Garden of Gethsemane in which Jesus' soul was crucified. Now, the first half of Mark's Garden of Gethsemane passage ends with Jesus coming back from praying and he finds his disciples asleep and yet this is the third time that he has found them sleeping. Third time that he has found them derelict in the duties that he had prescribed for them. They were to be watchful, they were to be awake, they were to be praying. And what that tells us is that for Jesus, these hours in the garden had been agonizing and terrifying for him. But for his disciples, particularly for Peter, James, and John, these hours in the garden had made them sleepy and had dulled their senses. But the action is about to pick up for them. The action is going to pick up for us in the second half of this Garden Gethsemane passage. I want to go back and pick up right there where he comes back, intersects with, with his disciples and asks them, are they sleeping? And then read down through verse 52. So if you would read with me there this morning. Then he came back in verse 41 the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See. My betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body and the young men laid hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your, the reading of your word. Now I pray that your word will impact us and drive its truth deep within us. Give us understanding this morning. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. We've been on this study and this journey really through the gospel of Mark now for a year and a half. And I've, I've mentioned this to you on numerous occasions that I believe that there are really three questions that sort of hang behind every passage, really. Sometimes it's a little more overt. Sometimes it's a little more 
under the radar, but, but the three questions that seem to always be coming up in what Mark writes and tells us are these. It's questions about who is Jesus? And then secondly, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? And, and, and really that question might be framed differently and say, what was Jesus's mission? What was, what was the mission that God had sent him on? And then the third question always hangs in the background is what difference does it make? What difference does it make who Jesus is? What difference does it make what he came to do? Those are the three questions that, that seem to be hanging behind all of the texts that we've studied. And I actually believe that it is those questions, and perhaps I should say ra rather the incorrect answers to those questions, that stands behind the events that we see depicted for us that I've read for you this morning. In other words, I believe that it is a lack of understanding or a false understanding of who Jesus is that inevitably leads to a lack of or a false understanding with regard to what kind of Messiah Jesus is, or we might say a lack or false understanding of Jesus' mission. And when that occurs, well, the one who fails to understand who Jesus is and the reason for his coming will ultimately fail to appreciate and benefit from the difference that Jesus can make. And I believe that is that scenario... The failure to truly understand who Jesus is coupled with a failure to understand why he came that I think stands behind this text. And I want to show you how it plays out this morning. I've listed for you a very simple outline today, just some, some thoughts for us to hang our, some hooks for us to hang our thoughts on about how Jesus was misunderstood and how that is depicted in Mark's gospel. And the very first point that I want you to note this morning is simply this. We see that Jesus was misunderstood by, first of all, the kiss of Judas. The kiss of Judas. It's a little less common. Matter of fact, it might be a little weird in our culture for someone to just go up and kiss somebody on the cheek or on the hand. It's far less common in our culture today, but it was very common in the first century Jewish world. In fact, to do so was an ordinary gesture of affection. It was, it was a, a gesture of respect. It was an appropriate act of showing endearment. But I want you to notice that the kiss from Judas was anything but ordinary. It was anything but a gesture of affection and respect. In fact, the text reveals that rather than Judas's kiss being an appropriate act of endearment from a disciple, it was instead an unfitting and an inappropriate act of hatred from a betrayer. Mark emphasizes the role of traitor that Judas played by identifying him in two different ways. Verse 43, we read that Judas was one of the 12. That's a pretty elite company that he was with. He was one of the, one of the dozen that hung with Jesus for three years. But then in verse 44, notice that he is listed as a betrayer. What that tells us is that G Judas had been part of Team Jesus, but now he was playing for the opposite team, the team that wanted to see Jesus destroyed, the team that would ultimately crucify him on a cross. You'll also notice that in verse 44, when Judas gave this kiss to Jesus, it was given as a signal, a signal that was necessary to identify Jesus. And many have said, well, didn't they know who Jesus was? Well, remember, this is, this is night, and it's outside the walls of the city. There weren't streetlights. There weren't flashlights that they could be used to, so that they could point out. In other words, Judas going up to this group of, of, of a dozen or so guys and maybe a few others, 
He was there to specifically identify for this crowd exactly which one of them was Jesus who needed to be arrested. You might also think about it this way. Judas would have been the only one who could have walked into that particular group of people without causing suspicion. Why? Because he was one of the 12. He'd been with them. And that would have kept them from being alerted. And in their mind, it would also have kept Jesus from having a possibility of escaping. That's why Judas says, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him, lead him away safely. I think a more accurate translation of that verb is lead him away under guard, take him away under guard. So what we learn is that this kiss from Judas is different from other kisses. It's out of the ordinary because it comes not from the lips of a friend, but rather from the lips of a traitor. And it is not an act of endearment. It is an act of betrayal. But it should also be noted that this kiss is different because it's not the normal verb that would typically be used to describe a kiss. Rather, the word that Mark uses in verse 45 is an intensive form of the normal verb. Interestingly enough, the normal verb is phileo. Mark uses the word katafileo here, and it means to kiss affectionately. It means to kiss fervently. Perhaps what Mark used this verb to insinuate was that Judas gave Jesus a prolonged kiss. Or maybe it was that he just kissed him over and over and over again. Or maybe it was it was just this passionate kiss that Judas gave. Whatever the means, whatever, the, whatever we conclude, what we know is that this was no modest or reserved display of affection. Rather, it was a, a lavish and passionate display. Kent Hughes describes it as the kind of kiss that you would give to someone that you love. And really, therein lies the duplicity. Therein lies the deception because what we see is that in, G in Judas's act, he is doing something that gives all of the appearance on the front side that he loves Jesus, but we know that his heart has already turned black toward Jesus. Hughes goes on to say this, Judas's kiss drips with horror for it is a calloused prostitution of one of humanity's most sacred symbols. And then he goes on and says this, Judas's infamous kiss showed how low a human heart can go. James Edwards describes this kiss as an act of love performed for a mission of hate. In Matthew's account of this exact incident, we read that, that Jesus looked at Judas and he said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And many authors have wondered was this Jesus' last-ditch effort to get Judas to recognize the error of his ways and to give him an opportunity to repent? Well, if it was, Judas did not take him up on his offer. And frankly, that tells us what we need to understand about Judas's act of treachery. Some have suggested that Judas did what he did out of greed and out of lust for money, and I think a case can be made for that. Others have suggested that, that Judas was jealous and that he was resentful. And still others, and I sort of find myself leaning this direction, find that Judas did what he did in betraying the Lord because he was disappointed in the fact that Jesus did not come to be an earthly ruler. 
that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that, that Judas had hoped he would be. And as a result, Judas was resentful of having wasted three years of his life following him around. I think there's a lot of credibility there. But here's, for all that we can say and for all that we can speculate about Judas's motives, we know this for sure. Judas did what he did because he did not truly understand who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. Jesus had called Judas to be among his disciples, to be one of the 12, one of that, that, that small group that would follow him. And, and he had taught Judas about the kingdom of God and, and he had shown him the power of his miracles, many of, whom, many of which Judas himself had benefited from. Jesus had given Judas the opportunity to serve in ministry. He had given him the opportunity to preach the gospel, to heal diseases, to cast out demons. He had showed Judas again and again that he was the son of the living God, that he was the Messiah, that he was the suffering servant who would die for sinners. As one author has put it, if to kiss is to love, then Jesus had been kissing Judas all through the gospel. Nevertheless, Judas determined this was not the kind of Messiah that he wanted. And rather than, than receiving Jesus' kisses, Judas betrayed him with one of his own. And as such, Judas remained outside of God's grace. And so that is the first way that I believe Mark depicts that Jesus was misunderstood in this Garden of Gethsemane passage. But I want you to notice there's a second way that he portrays it. And notice here, the, the second point on your outline is this. It's through the clubs of the crowd. Through the clubs of the crowd. Verse 43 tells us that Judas led a great multitude who came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. All of whom were armed to the teeth with swords and clubs. Now, the first thing that we note is that this delegation came at the command of the Jewish authorities. He, he mentions them there the chief priests, scribes, and elders. That's, a, that's an elongated way of saying it was the Sanhedrin who was behind this. The Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling body, was behind many of these who had come out. But, but when John writes what he writes, he tells us that they were also accompanied by a detachment of troops, which gives indication that Romans, Roman soldiers were also among this group that went out to arrest Jesus. And so a lot of the question comes is how many of them were there that came out to arrest Jesus? And the truth is we don't know for sure, but Mark tells us that it was a great multitude. And it was a great multitude who were armed with swords and clubs in order to be able to squash any resistance that Jesus and his band of followers might offer. But when they come out there with their clubs and with their swords, notice that Jesus kind of chides them. He asks them a question and then he makes a, a statement. In verses 48 and 49, he says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? And then he says, I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Jesus is, is, is challenging these club-toting hooligans that are out to get him and says, Listen, you're treating me as if I'm, a, as if I'm some kind of a, a, a criminal, a, a robber. It's interesting that the word that is used here for robber is, used, is the same word used to describe the two thieves between whom Jesus is crucified the next day. Verse, verse 48 is translated by the NIV this way. It says, am I leading a rebellion 
that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. The action of the mob indicate quite clearly that they really have no idea who Jesus is. They don't have any idea what to expect from him. But they should have because Jesus says, I was with you daily in the temple. I was teaching you about myself. I was revealing God's word to you. I was, I was teaching you from the Old Testament about who the Messiah would be and revealing to you that I was him. I was telling you about the kingdom that I came to inaugurate. Yet you never arrested me then, but here you come under the darkness of night with your swords and your clubs and arrest me as if I was some sort of an outlaw or a renegade or some sort of militant insurrectionist. Here's my interpretation of what takes place here. The clubs of the crowd were a means to demonstrate force in order to show Jesus exactly what kind of man he was dealing with. It was their way of throwing their chest out and letting him know who was going to be in charge. The irony, the irony of this scene is just simply that, that the crowd had no idea who they were dealing with. So that's the second way that Mark depicts that Jesus was misunderstood. The first was from the kiss of Judas. The second is from the clubs of the crowd. But notice the third way our text reveals it, and that's through the sword of Peter. The sword of Peter. And you will immediately notice that I have put Peter's name in brackets. And I have done that on purpose because Mark does not reveal that it is Peter. He doesn't say that he is the disciple who brandished his sword and lopped off the ear of one of the men in the mob. Mark just tells us this in verses 46 and 47. He says, When they laid their hands on Jesus and took him, one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. That's all that Mark gives us. John, however, gives us details. In John 18, verse 10, John writes, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So the specifics, according to John, are that it was Peter who wielded the sword and that it was a man named Malchus who lost his ear. And it wasn't just any ear, it was his right ear. John makes sure that we know all the details of the story. So, so what we can also understand is that evidently Peter was so good at wielding a sword that he could take off a man's ear in the middle of the dark night or he was so bad that his aim was really off and he missed his head and got his ear instead. In one sense, I guess we can say that Peter was doing his best to live up to all that he had said that he would do. I mean, he had told Jesus, it doesn't matter what happens, I'm going to be right here by your side. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so Peter may be just here showing his, his, uh, his bravado. He certainly showed guts by, by coming at, at Malchus. I think we can say that. But his actions also prove that Peter didn't understand Jesus. We have to rely on the other gospel writers here because Mark just doesn't give us all the details. But, but no sooner had, had Peter cut off Malchus's ear than John tells us that Jesus tells him, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? And that is a direct reference back to where he had spent the first part of the night in prayer and, and the Father's will had been given. This is what you must do. And so he's simply saying, are you going to thwart the will of God? 
Put your sword up. Matthew describes the conversation between Jesus and, and Peter this way. In Matthew 26, verses 52 and following, he says, Put your sword back in its place. And then Jesus said to him, For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Then one final detail that we should note comes from what Luke tells us in Luke 22, verse 51. And that is that as soon as Peter had cut off Malchus's ear, what did Jesus do? Picked it up, put it back on, healed him. So he reversed all the harm that Peter had just caused. So Peter, who is this strong and this bold and this valiant one who decides to defend Jesus with his sword is rebuked by Jesus and the injury that he, he, that he caused is healed. And so when we look at that whole composite picture, we come away with a few things that I think are important for us to know. Number one, what Peter did was dangerous. And it wasn't dangerous to Malchus. What Peter did was dangerous to himself and ultimately to the church. You see, many have noted that had Jesus not healed Malchus's ear, that there would have been four crosses on Calvary the next day, not just three. But, but God still had a plan to use Peter in a mighty way in the birth of the church and also in the growth of the church, and it did not involve wielding a sword. So what Peter did was dangerous. Secondly, what Peter did was unnecessary. And you get that from what Matthew tells us about Jesus' comments. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was 6,000 men. So 12 legions would have been 72,000 angels that, that Jesus could have immediately called to his defense. And that tidbit of information should not go unnoticed because it clearly tells us that Jesus did not need to be defended. He was arrested because he was willing to be arrested. He suffered because he voluntarily suffered. Obviously, Peter did not understand who Jesus was at all. Then the, the last thing we ought to note about Peter is that he was mistaken. He had failed to understand the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. He readily admitted, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, earlier back in Mark chapter 8. But it's still obvious he didn't understand exactly what kind of Christ he came to be. He had failed to actually appropriate what we talked about earlier from Isaiah 53 and actually lay that upon Jesus and recognize that he was that kind of Messiah. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says that the Messiah would be oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Peter failed to recognize that that was the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. He also failed to understand other passages in the Old Testament, like Psalm 22 verses 16 and 18. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus had clearly revealed himself to be the Messiah. 
And the scriptures declared specifically what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. And Jesus just simply points out to Peter that the scriptures must be fulfilled. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says, if you'll notice there at the end of verse 49 here in Mark 14. He says the scriptures must be fulfilled. That's a very important statement. Because what I think is obvious about every other person in this scene that we've looked at so far, from Judas to the club-toting crowd to, to Peter himself, they all thought that they were dictating the events. They all looked for the opportunity for them to assert their will upon everything that was happening. They were doing things according to their plan and according to their will. And while it is obvious that they were fully exercising their will, Things were nevertheless happening according to the divine plan that God had had in place all along. The scriptures must be fulfilled. And what that means is that Jesus is no pawn in this scene. He is not some unwilling participant who is being manhandled by a bloodthirsty mob led by a mastermind traitor who has tricked him. Absolutely not. In fact, everything that's happening here is happening to Jesus and is being carried out according to God's divine plan. Remember that Jesus had just spent time staring into that cup that he knew that he would drink and he had submitted his will to the fathers. None of the other players in this story know anything and understand anything about that, but Jesus did. Which is why... It was more important for Jesus that the scriptures be fulfilled than he finds some escape plan. So, so we've seen that Mark has depicted that Jesus and his mission were misunderstood by the betrayal of the kiss of Judas, by the clubs of the crowd, and by the sword of Peter. And then notice finally, the last point on your outline is the flight of the disciples. Verse 50 is just so short, and we might just blow past it, but it's a lot to take in. Then they all, who? All of his disciples. Everybody, Peter the bragger, James and John, the ones that said that they would drink from the same cup that Jesus would drink from, Matthew the former tax collector, Simon the zealot, all of them, they all forsook him and fled. And Jesus is left utterly alone. James Montgomery Boyce provides a very convicting commentary on this passage. I'm going to read it for you. He says, moments before, the disciples had been sleeping rather than praying. Now they were fleeing rather than standing by their Lord. Now hold on. Here's where he comes in. He says, do you want to know what you are made of? Do you want to know what kind of courage you have? Look at these men in that moment. That is what you are. Like them, you are weak and fearful more concerned for your own well-being than for Jesus. I'm going to let that just sink in for a second. That kind of statement rings bells and hurts our pride. But how many times has that been true of me? I won't ask you to raise your hand. How many times have I fled rather than sticking there, praying, being watchful, 
being faithful. Mark goes on to tell us in verse 51 and 52 this really odd thing. He's the only one that writes about it. He says and there's a young man, a certain young man, who followed Jesus having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man, and the, 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 the other young men, that would be the club-toting crowd, they, they laid hold of him and, left, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. It's kind of like the story of, 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 that, that we see when... when Somebody grabs onto someone and they just keep running and, and, until they tear away from their clothes and he just runs away naked into the dark night. Mark tells us this. Nobody else talks about it. And interpreters and scholars have had a field day hypothesizing on who this certain young man was. And the truth of the matter is he doesn't, he doesn't give him a name and he's never referred to anywhere else. Most think that it was Mark himself. And I find that explanation to be about as plausible as any. But if it was Mark, consider how embarrassing and shameful it was for him to recount the fact that on the night that Jesus was arrested and taken away, he ran scared, fearful for his own life, stark naked away. Whoever this naked follower of Christ was, he along with all the other disciples demonstrated that even here, on the eve of his crucifixion, they still didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't understand the power that he had. They didn't understand what he came to do. They didn't understand that the most, that the, that the safest place for them to would have been, been right next to Jesus, even though that would have been the most dangerous place for them to have been. They still lacked understanding with, about who Jesus was and the purpose for why he came. And as such... That's been the case throughout this entire scenario. Each portrayal has demonstrated that right up until this very moment in the garden, Jesus remained an enigma to all of those, those outside of his crowd and those inside his inner circle. They still didn't understand him. And if the story were to end right there, it'd be a bad story. If the story ended right there, there'd be no gospel to it. Thankfully, what to this point in the story remained veiled and unknown was ultimately revealed. You see, though everyone in this text today demonstrated that they did not understand Jesus, nor did they understand what his mission was, we can be thankful, as my sermon in the Senate states for you, that Jesus understood what all the others did not. That his purpose was to die in the place of sinners according to the revealed will of God. And why is that so important? Well, it's important because this garden here in Gethsemane was not the first garden that we learn about. The first garden we learn about comes in Genesis. And there we learn that God created this beautiful garden and in it, Adam and Eve lived. And Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony with God without fear and without shame. But when they yielded to temptation, what you see is effectively they tell God, not your will be done, but my will be done. And as a result of that, everything changed. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden because of their sin, and the angel with a flaming sword was placed outside the gates of the garden to keep Adam and Eve from ever returning. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, who Paul describes as the second, the last Adam, 
who was also tempted to serve himself, does not give in to that temptation, but rather he submits his will to the Father, praying, not my will, but your will be done. And though, as Mark describes, in this garden, there is still nakedness, there is still shame, there is still sinfulness, and there is still self-service and treachery being demonstrated by those who are members of Adam's race, what we also see is that through Christ's obedience, we are offered hope. You see, through the disobedience of the first Adam came death, and that death spread to all mankind. But through the obedience of Christ, the second Adam came life. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. What that simply means is that were it not for Christ and for his obedience, none of us would ever be able to stand before him. In fact, all of us in various ways have acted just like the players in this drama that we have examined this morning. Some of you, like Judas, have been tasting the good things that Christ has placed before you for a very, very long time. As we stated earlier, if blessings are kisses from the Lord, then he's been kissing and lavishing you with kisses all of your life. But unfortunately, some of you still refuse to acknowledge your sinfulness. You still refuse to acknowledge your need of his mercy and his grace. Living in humility and in service of him as Lord of your life, it's just not all that appealing. You like a Savior who is a benevolent Savior, one who is full of blessings and full of benefits to give you all the things that you want when you want them. But a Savior who demands to be Lord of your life, well, that's not all that interesting. There's still others of you, perhaps some who see Jesus more as a revolutionary. You see him more as one who comes to, to challenge the status quo and to institute change. And, and, and if, but if that's all that Jesus is, if he's just a revolutionary, then your allegiance to him will be based upon your circumstances. And as long as your circumstances are not good, well, then you really like Jesus because he can come in and be a tool to help you create the kind of world that you think is, is, is important and, and good to have. But if you are in, enjoying your circumstances in life, then you may find yourself resisting Jesus, resisting the demands that he makes upon your life, even forcing him out through swords and clubs. And then there are many of us who overestimate ourselves and we continue to continually underestimate Jesus. Like Peter, we fail to realize the power and the authority that he has at his command. We fail to, to consider the limitless resources that Jesus has and that he has those available to meet our every need. Instead, we often charge out in our own strength and in our own abilities. One has put it this way, like Peter, we often fight the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon for the wrong reason, ending up with the wrong result. And listen, if we're not fighting, we're fleeing. For so many of us, our lives are depicted by either foolishly standing in our own strength or, as Peter did, or by running away as the disciples and the young naked boy did. 
Brothers and sisters, if we misunderstand who Jesus is and if we misunderstand why he came, then we will miss the great salvation that he came to bring sinners just like you and just like me. He came to live the life that we could never live and pay the price that we could never pay so that by his obedience, even unto death, we might have life. And I want you to know this morning, brothers and sisters, that is the best possible news that I could ever give to anyone. And I offer it to you this morning as well. Jesus clearly understood what all the others did not and that his purpose was to die in the place of sinners according to the revealed will of God. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel and this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.